holy cow, Keegan Randall. I mean, can we just elect her queen of the world right now? Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. And welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? It has been a better week. Yay! I, I do not have COVID. Yay! No family has COVID. Yay! Um, made it through Inauguration Day in America with <laughs> nothing getting blown up. That's always good. Kind of a big thing. And they, I have a little snow on the ground. That's good as well. But, yeah, not in that, you know, I'm trapped in the house. I can't get out. It's Laura Ingalls winter. No, it's like just nice, pretty snow, but I can still get out. Very nice. Very nice. Speaking of snow, we are talking about cross-country skiing today with uh, book club Claire. Claire is back to discuss our latest selection, World Class, The Making of the U.S. Women's Cross-Country Ski Team by Peggy Shin. Take a listen to our conversation. We are excited to have Book Club Claire back to talk about our latest book club selection, World Class, The Making of the U.S. Women's Cross-Country Ski Team by Peggy Shin. Claire, take it away. Thank you very much, Jill. I know that I usually ask you for your opinions first, and then I kind of bring it back around to my opinions, but I got to put it out there. I thought this book was going to cover the 2018 PyeongChang Olympics, where our cover girls... Keegan Randall and Jesse Diggins got a gold medal and they're featured on the cover and the book was published in 2018. So with that knowledge in mind, I'm going, oh, I can't wait to hear how they start from down in the dumps overall as a ski team way back when, like in the 70s and 80s, and then they get better and better and they peak with the gold medal. And then I started reading the book and I saw that, oh, look, the pictures. The pictures don't have any Olympic pictures. Oh, that must be because they didn't get the rights to the photos because, you know, sometimes people are, are picky about their photos for the Olympics. All right, fine. So I keep reading and keep reading. And it gets to the Sochi Olympics, and I realize there's not much book left. And I get to the end of the book, and I go, where's the rest of the book? Where do they talk about the PyeongChang Olympics? And... I, I think that kind of shaped my opinion on the, on the book as a whole, because even though the book was pretty well written and I liked reading it, when I got to the end, I felt very dissatisfied because I didn't get that ending. And even we would have been published two years later, in, uh, or we got the book two years later in 2020, and yet there's still no like additional chapter put on to the book that mentions the Olympics that I that did not satisfy me. So I, I left with a, a dissatisfied taste in my mouth. So I want to hear what the two of you thought. Yeah, I wondered the same thing because I, I also saw the 2018 copyright date and things were building slowly. And I wonder I, I don't know how long it took Peggy Shen to write this, but I wonder if Sochi was supposed to be the culmination because Keegan was really kind of supposed to win a medal there and she just had a lot of issues and it wasn't her Olympics. And then you 
kind of go, well, I have to get the book done. And the book actually got published on February 6, 2018, which is right at the beginning of the Pyeongchang Games. So y you miss the big climax like we were all waiting for. And that that was a little tough. And and I don't know if this just didn't sell enough copies to warrant another re a reprinting with an additional chapter on it. But yeah, that was that was a little tough. Yeah, I was surprised now that you tell me when it was published. It was published in anticipation, but I was surprised that it got published without that medal-winning story at the very end. Because the whole point of the story seemed to be, we're going to win an Olympic medal. That's the point of this whole ski team. And there's no Olympic medal in the book. Right. And I wonder, because book production takes a while, too. So I wonder how long the book was in production, and they finally just when it didn't happen at Sochi, everybody must have said, okay, we just got to get this book published. And how long it took to get in production, they said, well, let's just put it out in front of Pyeongchang because who knows, they could have another bad Olympics, not being able to anticipate what was going to happen because Jesse was still fairly young on the, the women's ski team comparatively because they have pretty long professional careers. But maybe they just said, we, we can't hope for this anymore. We got to get this book out. It kind of reminds me of our previous book with Abinabindra's medals, where you, he gets to his gold medal, but then you get to hear about all the aftermath. Here we didn't even get to the gold medal and we're left, we're left wanting. So maybe reading that book first and then this book kind of ruined it for us because we're assuming that we're going to get the whole thing because we loved it so much in the previous book. And then this book doesn't have that. I wonder if that has something to do with it. Anyway, they did, they did pick the perfect cover. They did, they really did. I'm not satisfied with the, the publisher that put this out, only putting it out like within days of the Olympics starting. Who's going to want to read a book when the Olympics are happening? I am not one of those people. So I'm, I'm sure a lot of people picked up this book after the Olympics, after they saw the cover and were ultimately disappointed. So sorry, Peggy Shin, but... Uh, I guess your publisher, I, I'm going to blame the publishers on this one for, for forcing it out probably when they shouldn't have. But the book in general is a nice tale of where cross-country skiing started all the way to where it is now. And I appreciate it, especially the first few chapters where it was talking about this, all this history and where this all came from and how cross-country skiing originated in the U.S., which I wasn't too aware of, honestly. The only historical cross-country skiing knowledge that I have is, have you ever read the book Snow Treasure? Did oh, you read yeah. that? Yeah, I a copy of it. Yeah. When I was yeah. A kid. They're all about sledding, but, but they're like the, I don't know if he's the butler or something. I just read it a few, a few years ago, but the butler is like this amazing cross-country skier and they hear about him flying on his skis and it, it and that took place in, in Norway. So hearing about, that you know i had right. some knowledge and and just a little aside it's a young adult book about children cross-country skiing or sledding gold across norway to protect it from the nazis right they actually have to sled because they hide the gold underneath uh themselves as they're sledding down uh, and yes they hide it from the nazis it was uh by marie mcswiggan if, if you ever want to read a book I highly recommend it to anybody, not just young adults. Anyway, so that's the only historical knowledge I had. So this really fleshed it out very much a 
uh, Scandinavian center. So the fact that, of course, it would pick up in America. Of course, it would pick up in areas with snow, but it was also slow to start in America, and especially when it comes to, to the women that are doing the cross-country skiing. I know Allison, Jill and I were talking earlier, and she mentioned that maybe you had some, you were kind of a little bored at some parts. I, I want to hear what parts you thought were, weren't, were a little confusing or not as interesting. Yeah, I was, I was having a hard time getting through portions of it because I kept getting confused about who we were talking about. There's a lot of this coach, this coach, this coach. Obviously, with the skiers, you know, we've interviewed Keegan. We watched Jesse. So whenever they talked about, you know, Sophie Caldwell and all the other skiers, I could manage that. But when they were talking about all the different coaches and all the different directors of different programs, I had no hook to hold on to who we were talking about. And then there was this very confusing thing where there were all these mats. There are all these same people named Matt. And there are a lot of mats in my life, my husband, my brother-in-law, my best friend's have. So that just, I'm like, really? And so then I got distracted with this sort of weird connotation in my life. So that was hard um, for me. So it was, it was almost no fault of the author as much as I just can't keep track of all these people and why do I need to know all of their stories? And I understood, as I got to the end, I kind of understood better what she was trying to do. But going through it, I'm like, do I need to know every single coach and their journey to getting to becoming one of the women's coaches or one of the program directors? I feel, yeah, that I felt the same way as we were going through that all the program directors, I'm going, do I need to know this guy's name? Yes, he contributed this this part of the story, but do we need to delve into it so much? I did appreciate the section where they kind of talk about the main coach for the current team, that they they put in a little more of the biographical stuff into his story. But other than that, it, it did get kind of, it was a slog after a little while. I think for me, the interesting bits were really in the, the beginning, how difficult it was for the women's team and seeing how the women were treated differently. They had um, a, a skier, Cammie Thompson, now uh, Cammie Thompson Graves. She made the U.S. ski team in 1984. She got a sponsor contract for $500. Find out later that a guy on her team got the same sponsor contract for a lot more. It was things of dealing with that or there weren't really clothes for women they had to put up with, with men's uniforms or the clothes they had made them look weird and weren't really functional for what they needed to do. I think that's one of the things I really liked in how they made that happen. And I, and I also appreciated more of what Keegan did to make a team, but create a team, not make a team because you make the, the U.S. ski team. But she was alone for so long. And I think Peggy did a really good job of showing how difficult it is for an athlete from any country in any sport where you're the only one and how much you lack in resources, how much you lack in being able to communicate with other people. And when you're on one of these sports where you're just on tour for several months at a time and you're living out of a suitcase and you can't go home and you can't really talk to people from home, although it's, it's easier now with technology, how isolating and hard that can be. And how they can affect your performance. I 
wish we had some of this information before we had interviewed Keegan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I feel like we would have done a very, I mean, we were talking about specifically 2018 and the things that she was doing at that time. And she already had her son and coming back. I think we would have done a very different interview. I know I would have. I, I would have asked her a lot more about being alone and traveling with the men and kind of how that developed. Not that we, we would have ended up talking to her for like three hours, though. <laughs> I, did, I did really enjoy, as, as Jill said, how they did the actual team with Keegan kind of front and center because she was the enduring constant through a, a long time. She had to deal with cancer and then she's recovered. But she was the person that they could kind of lead. So once they got brought her into the picture, you could see where it was going. I think, Jill, on the other hand, from what you said, I, I wasn't a huge fan of them mentioning all of these things that undermine the women because as, as somebody who follows the Olympics, I hear that story a lot because unfortunately it is prevalent in every single sport and it stinks. Uh, so when we got to that part, it's like, okay, these are awful things. And I hate how they undermined the female athletes, how people just assumed, I think there was a quote in the book that you like, you go to high school, you go to college, you get married, you have a family, you don't have time to be a female athlete. I think that was the quote. I really like that. But once they got into, here's the struggle of actually putting the teams together, that's where I got interested again. And hearing where it's kind of like, it reminds me of the Miracle on Ice, to be honest, where you have the team from Minnesota and the team from Boston trying to get together and they can't stand each other for a while and then they figure it out. This one took a lot longer where you've got, you've got individuals in Utah, individuals in Alaska, individuals that are still in college, like in Northern Michigan, and one of the Ivy League schools. What was the Ivy League Dartmouth. school? Dartmouth. I did not realize Dartmouth had such a prominent cross-country ski team. Oh, just a, such a prominent ski team, period, because they're also big in Alpine as well. I had no right. clue. Right. And all of, uh, you know, once I lived in New England, I understood how big skiing was in the school system because they'll have high school ski teams. Mm-hmm. Yep. So so that makes sense that there's that kind of pool of people to choose from. But I think if you weren't in that area, you wouldn't necessarily know because that growing up in the Midwest, that's not something I really connected with. I think there was something like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of Olympians that come from New England, but not really understanding why it was that they got there just because skiing was part of their growing up. It's kind of like cross uh, um, lacrosse, where it, you talk to two high schoolers, from one from the Midwest and one from the East, and the, uh, the Midwestern person asks, hey, you know, what sports did you do? are you doing in high school? I'm doing lacrosse and skiing. And the Midwest person would be like, how can you do those? That's awesome. Or they, they would think it's dumb because all they think of is football, basketball, baseball, and that's it. And softball, if you're if you're a female, I, I think that having those pockets all over the United States, yeah, it was detrimental. But once you brought in a force who was gonna make it her goal to create a team and create positivity within that team and just be goofy every once in a while, that really made a difference. Uh, so I loved hearing the things that Keegan did and the socks. 
I, 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 did love, I did love the race socks. That, and sometimes that's what helps build your team is something silly or like, okay, we're going to put on our warrior paint and, and glitter up for this race. And we've got our relay socks on and we are a team. And I think it's, I did get from this book, the difficulty you have as an individual wanting the best for yourself and trying hard, not just to build a team, but to support that team. So it's not like I lost, she won, I'm mad at her. It's I lost, I didn't have a great day, but she won and that's fantastic. And she's my teammate. And it's that kind of support that that really that that support and that attitude that really made this team strong. And and now we see the results of that decades later. That it's funny you say that because a couple of people on the Facebook group had warned me that I was going to get really mad at the beginning of the book. And I think what they were referring to was the things that you, Claire, were referring to, to the, you know, Pierre Cooper, de, de Couperton thinks women are all going to die if they run and, and all those kind of typical anti-feminist things. But actually what made me mad at the beginning of the book was Peggy Shin made the comment that women need to be coached differently than men. Oh. And I completely disagree with that because of what you're talking about. I think the reason women need to be coached differently from men is because they haven't had the same opportunities. I and that idea of building a team. And once you had that team established, I don't think you've got any differences. I think the issue is most of the time there's one seat at the table for a woman. And so, of course, the women have to compete against each other for that one seat. But once you create 10 seats at the table and you have a whole women's cross-country team, they're not going to – women are not naturally, despite popular opinion, competitive with each other and caddy. That has never been my experience, except maybe in junior high. You know, my experience has always been rising water raises all boats, and just once you've got that team established, it takes away that need to, we have to treat all these women athletes so differently. You know, I think a good coach is a good coach for that team, whether it's male or female. There you you've go. got to deal with those athletes in front of you, whoever they are, wherever they're coming from. So yes, I did get mad at the beginning of the book for a totally different reason. I, everybody was warning me about <laughs> I thought what you're saying is very true. But I also, when I read it, I kind of went, yeah, I can see how that might be the case. But I also know that one of my coaches in high school coached the women's basketball team, and then he was the assistant coach for the men's basketball team. And he understood that the two teams are different, not because of male and female, but because of who makes up the team. And I, I loved your, your speech there. That was perfect. So I'm not going to build on it too much anymore. <laughs> so going off of what you just said, it makes it even more awesome that now in this year's cross-country ski team, they, they mentioned how there are different groups. There's the A group, the B group, and then the, like, the development group, the D group. In this year's group for the U.S., there are six women and one man, which is wow. such a turnaround from what it had been previously where there were maybe four men and Keegan. So it, it's wonderful that 
these names that now I've become familiar with, not because of the book, but because I, I have watched them on the Olympic channel, props to the Olympic channel, by the way, because they will put on a lot of these cross country ski races uh, on over the weekends. And it makes me like, oh, Sadie Bjornsson. I know how to say her name, first of all. And I know that she's very prolific. Sophie Caldwell, who's now actually Sophie Caldwell Hamilton. She's now married. And then there's a few that are rising up. And I love that I have that opportunity to kind of point those people out and go, oh, I know her story now. I think that was pretty, that was a neat way to include some of some of the skiers that are still skiing today. Yeah, I I agree that it's nice to have the ski races on Olympic Channel and on television more. It's just because you do get the the more exposure these smaller sports get, the more people get interested in them. And this year Jesse Diggins won the Tour de Ski and that was a that got a lot of headlines and I think paying attention to media focusing on these smaller sports helps them a lot more. And for those who aren't aware, the Tour de Ski is similar, indeed, to the Tour de France, except it's uh, over eight days. They do races in various locations, and the overall, the smallest time wins. So she actually won over a span of eight days, which I think is amazing. And it shows that she's priming herself for 2022. She's mm-hmm. not satisfied with that gold medal that she got in Pyeongchang. She's ready to take it to the next level, and I can't wait to see how that all works. Did you have a favorite skier? Obviously, we all adore Keegan. We adored Keegan before we read this book. And now I'm like, oh, now I know why breast cancer didn't scare her. She had already almost died like three times. But other than Keegan, did you have a favorite? Because I'll start. Mine was Sadie. I just want to take her home and make her some dinner. She seemed like such a sweet kid. And now she got all excited when she went to Scandinavia and everyone could pronounce her name. I just... I loved that. And she just, she just touched me for whatever reason. I like Sophie Caldwell just because she she did like swimming. She hated swimming out of everything that she did. So she, she loved everything else and just ended up gravitating towards skiing. She also has family that is deep into cross country skiing. So, I mean, her grandfather was the father of cross-country skiing in the United States. So hearing how those people are able to take that heritage and progress it forward. And she's making a name for herself, but she's also able to say, yeah, I'm a woman in women's cross-country ski, but I learned from the best. And that doesn't make me any different than anyone else. Jill, do you have a favorite? I like Jessie Diggins. She's bubbly. She's excited. And... She just can turn it on to another level in her skiing and find some gas left in the tank to make to make things happen. Speaking of gas, uh, you inserted that clip into your opening, and I can't hear everything he says. Is they're all completely gassed, and then I spend like three minutes trying to figure out what the rest of what's he what's the rest of that clip. They've given it everything they've got on the Klobobakken. On the what? On the Klobobakken. Oh my, oh, okay. Was that, that was part of the course. I, he says Klobobakken and I'm going, what the heck is he saying? So yeah, there we go. I, I love that you inserted that into it. Uh, and yeah, that, that just makes me smile every time. Cause it makes me think of Jesse Diggins and how. Here comes Diggins. Yeah. How she just stormed back and that 
I wish I, th- I don't think I had seen that race live. I think I saw it afterwards, but it was how, how both of them were able to just stay in it. And then Jesse just flew past at the end. That was so cool. I loved it. And what was so funny was to read about how many times they had partnered in that race prior to Pyeongchang. And it always seemed like something went wrong. They would sometimes win. You know, they, they did very well as, as team sprint partners. But, you know, at first, Jesse was really struggling with the, the handoff. She the was exchange. Being, mm-hmm. Yeah, the exchange. She was being very Midwestern. And just, would you like to go in front? Oh, thank you so much. And it was like, no, you have to, to plow through. And, and that Keegan kind of mothered her a little bit in that way and just sort of like, no, you got to keep going. Who are these Midwesterners you speak of? I don't, I don't know anybody in the Midwest that is that polite. I think you're you're messing us up with Canadians. But but it was, it was interesting to hear how the U S skiing versus the world cup skiing was different and how aggressive it is. And when I think a lot of people, including myself will get something, a, a, picture in their head of what cross-country skiing is and it's just oh gosh this is a long boring race but then when you hear like oh man they're jostling around turns people are falling down all the time you have really handoffs that are really contentious it makes me want to watch it more do you ever get the feeling like if, if someone if some jostling happens or someone gets knocked over don't you almost as an american want to just say well throw the flag penalty he's out of the game <laughs> Because that's we are we are established in the rules of the sports that we watch here that any sort of bodily contact is almost looked down upon frequently. So that's why football is such a, a hot commodity and why people have such issues with football too. Because yes, it's high contact, but they're, they're going to call that for some reason. Whereas in cross country skiing, it's like I'm going to elbow you in the face and. You know, break your nose and it's fine because you're just going to keep skiing and so am I. I, I don't, I, they probably do have some rules there, but I, I want to progress with what you were talking about though, with, you know, the title of this book is world-class and yes, while I was not satisfied with how it ended, I don't think that was the point. If you look at the title of the book where it, it's mentioning world-class, it's just showing how the American cross-country ski team has finally caught up and through the teamwork that they did, through the, the face paint and the awesome socks and the cheerfulness and also their amazing talent, they were able to become world class where now you see an American flag next to the start list and you're going, oh, that's someone I need to look out for instead of saying, oh, that's just an American. I do right. I, kind right. of going around to what we started with. And and I also think, and to bring it back to a topic we don't love, to, well, I love to talk about, it's the money. Because once you get money in, you can develop more skiers and you have more room for a team. It'd be interesting to look at now how much money the women's team has versus the men in terms of being able to bring people up onto the World Cup circuit. Yeah, because that tour de ski comes with money. That tour de ski won, uh, win that Jesse Diggins won, she now is flush. And I use that term very loosely when we're talking about athletes. But they get money with points. They get money with victories. And it's that much less they have to 
go out and pass the hat for. Right. Peggy did talk about that, how yes, just the having to get sponsors. And, and I forget which skier it was who went into a restaurant and was like, oh, can I set up a tip jar here for me? And they said, yeah, you're not going to get money with that. How about we have a fundraiser for you instead? And that got a lot of money. But the the work involved when you're single athlete trying to train to compete on that level, which takes a lot of time, and then you have a whole nother job trying to get sponsors and maybe school on top of that. I mean, it's, it's really tough. What I thought was one thing that I wish she had done a little bit more with, and it, it comes into the money is how the Americans as a team seemed so different than anybody else. And what did those other teams think about it? I mean, she mentioned a few individual skiers Mm -hmm. being like, if you're going to beat me, you're going to beat me and I'm going to respect you. And she included that one cartoon where they're dressed in cowboy hats and cowboy boots instead of ski boots um, that was in a European paper. But I'm curious because clearly this team is very American. The socks, the glitter, the flag waving. But I'm wondering, what does the Norwegian team or how does the Norwegian team react? I mean, she talked a little bit about that they were starting to do similar things. Mm-hmm. But what was the initial thought? Well, I, I did love that one of the members of the Finnish relay squad uh, in Sochi, where they actually won the uh, one of the medals in the relay, uh, I know, sorry, Finland, I'm going to get this wrong. I know Kaisa Sarinen, and she actually had trained with them. And then she came back, and she this was completely unintentional, I'm sure. She went and said, all the things that you taught me, I used, and my team used, and we got a medal. And that was the the one that the, the Americans didn't get a medal. And just to hear that, how you train someone else to win and you didn't get to win, oh, that that made me very sad because I mean it, they they all cried when they heard the story, but just to to have that effect, they they have had a very positive effect, and I think if you were to watch the season now, you would see a lot of that in play, where it's not just looked at where body paint is the weird girls from across the pond, but you see competitors that are going to kick your butts and also do it while wearing glitter on their faces. I think that's pretty cool. And I wonder if that's because this is an objective sport. Whoever's the fastest wins. Because I know in other sports, gymnastics and figure skating being prime examples, European judges hated when America was on the rise and really put, you know, judge them so much more harshly because they could. You know, obviously it's it's an, it's a judged sport with a score. You can't get away with that if it's a timed sport, but you could still have those feelings. It's also a different decade where, True. I mean, when you think of the 80s, I'm sure you're thinking of the 80s and 90s. Well, you still had that Soviet mentality in much of Eastern Europe. So, of course, they were going to judge a little harsher. And, and now we're 30, even 40 years after that, where things are much different now. Even in the even in the 
figure skating and gymnastics judging. Yeah, it's interesting because there's an illusion in the book to the Norwegian team being very reserved. And I wonder if that's just like there's a lot of reservedness in the cultures. But I, I do kind of wonder, like, okay, the, the Finnish woman came over and trained with the Americans and learned a whole bunch of stuff. And Keegan would go over and train with Norway or Sweden and come back. But I, I wonder if Peggy just didn't have enough time with her, even though, because I remember reading in the, the beginning how she could have just talked with people for hours and hours more than she got to. And I wonder if... She just couldn't get to what he can learn from Norway. And, and maybe that, that went into like too much technical stuff that she didn't want to get into for the book. Or too much focus away from the U.S. team, which right, was right. what she was really trying to talk about. Yeah, I think that the book could have used another year of formulating and putting it together. I, I don't think she had that chance because as we talked about earlier in the book or earlier in this podcast, publishers have dates and deadlines and they need to follow it. So it's too bad because I think there is the makings of an excellent book. We just never got to the, the whole story. And someday there'll be that additional chapter. And then I will, I will concede and say, this is an excellent book, but it just, isn't quite there. Any final thoughts from either of you? Holy cow, Keegan Randall. I mean, can we just elect her queen of the world right now? <laughs> I mean, she is an amazing athlete. You know, when we spoke to her, just so gracious and a wonderful woman to talk to. And just what a, a leader without needing to, you know, toot her own horn. Mm -hmm. In the best way. I mean, we that gold medal would never have happened. You know, this team would not exist without that one woman force. Right. And she was, like you say, not tooting her own horn. That's just not the kind of person she was. She wanted to build the team. And I think her actions and her contributions to daily training, racing, that helped build the team that they wanted to and the team that would succeed. It, it was interesting. Listener Meredith said in our Facebook group that she found it, the book exciting and encouraging and refreshing because if you were ever trying to do something incredibly hard with very few resources and everybody betting against you, this helps you realize it can be done. And we all went through this in 2020 but she said that the book really created a positive headspace for her. And I think that's a nice message to take away from that, too. Just the perseverance of Keegan and how she and even the coaches for the U.S. team that came along and saw what the women were doing and tried to help them with very few resources. Because it wasn't always just Keegan on her own. She had help from coaches who were trying to get them more money. But just that perseverance and belief that it can happen. And sometimes it's going to take you, what would it take her? She did five Olympics, right? So started in 2002 and went through 2018. That is a long time. I mean, you're talking about 20 years and that's not even including what it took to get onto 
the Salt Lake team. And granted, if you're the only U.S. woman, you might have an easier chance, but you still have to get World Cup points and you still have to qualify. And that qualification was a lot harder because it was just her on her own and with the coach. So persevering for 20 plus years, that takes a lot of grit. And that is a very uplifting story when you think about it. It's hard. To, I mean, I'm, I'm sure she does some some public speaking now and it's it's hard to know like in an hour oh what 20 years 25 years or so or more really feels like but this i think helps give an idea of what that length of time is like to realize your goal she had the opportunity to be the one skier Mm -hmm. and she had every opportunity to do that and some people would just rather it stay that way she did not want that to happen. And I think that's amazing. And it, it not only benefited her teammates, but it benefits the entire U.S. women's cross-country ski team from here on out, where now you have, instead of one skier, you've got six skiers on the A-team. And you could not have had that if you hadn't had a person willing to open up and, and want that team. So Right, and you've got a bigger pool, and you've got other little girls who have been inspired to take up the sport. And, and so that just helps the sport in general. So, and isn't it perfect that the gold medal was number one, Keegan and two in a team event with someone that she had basically pushed through her early years. I mean, it couldn't have been more, We've got a movie here, people. We have the Keegan movie. She's got pink hair. Come on. I, I think going back to what I just said, I don't think it would be a Keegan movie. I don't think she'd want that. I think she would want it to be the team. So let's let a couple more years flesh out so that we can get the the whole script from start to finish. I'm a real, I, I am very much on that right today. I'm sorry. I don't know what's wrong with me, but all right. Well, with that, I think it's time to look at our next book, which actually, do I have this right, is going to be like a a tandem with the movie club? Yes. Yes. It's a twofer. Tell me more. I'm so interested. So uh, we are going to be reading the book Foxcatcher, the true story of my brother's murder, John DuPont's madness, and the quest for Olympic gold by Mark Schultz with Dave Thomas. This is a... Uh, true story, and it's also a motion picture. Uh, Dave Schultz was uh, an Olympic gold medalist and wrestling champion. He was shot in the back by John DuPont. John DuPont had started like his own wrestling. It was kind of like the Bella Caroli Ranch. So he had started his own training center, DuPont of DuPont Chemical fame. Tons of money, started this wrestling center, and... Dave was helping him train. John DuPont was a little unhinged and things just kept going, getting weirder and weirder. And that culminated in this murder of Dave Schultz. And it also, uh, the book was turned into a movie in 2014 starring uh, Steve Carell as John DuPont and Channing Tatum as Mark Schultz and Mark Ruffalo as David Schultz. So we will be reading the book and then seeing the movie. I'm very curious about this because I've kind of avoided this book and this movie and, and just because of the the nature of what I'm going to read 
there's, you know, you talked about the, the weird tendencies that I sensing there's also some abuse going on. So it's like, I don't want to read this, but I know, you know, as a good book club person, I'm looking forward to getting together with you all to talk about it. Cause I think that's going to help me get through it. And, you know, I didn't realize the murder happened at the beginning of 1996. So this is actually like an interesting tie in to our Atlanta 1996 year, because this would have happened a few months before those games. Well, Claire, thank you so much for joining us for this book. It's been a lot of fun and we really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Claire. You can read Claire's blog, Light the Cauldron, and follow her on Twitter at Cauldron Light. Our next book will be Foxcatcher by Mark Schultz. You can support the show by getting your copy at bookshop.org slash shop slash flamealivepod. You'll support a local bookstore and we'll get a commission, so you will be keeping two groups' flames alive with your purchase. That's like lighting all the candles on the birthday cake with one match. Oh, it is, right? Don't you always feel really excited when you get that <laughs> and you don't have to resu- you know, resort to using one of the candles to light the other candles? Right, right. And, and, then the and wax dripping wax the all cake. over the place. Yeah. yeah. Did you see on Instagram that Keegan Randall has just a few classes left before she finishes her college degree? I saw that and she was talking about APU and she was talking about how she's been doing this for 20 years. She's just amazing. I, I still stand by my queen, Keegan. Yeah, I She needs agree. to be running the world. The pandemic would be over if she were running the world. She wouldn't put up with that. <laughs> well, speaking of Keegan and our Shook Flastanis, let's go see what's going on with Team Keep the Flame Alive. Welcome to Shook Flastan. After a 22-month hiatus from competition, half-pipe snowboarder Chloe Kim won her third Locks Open title. She fell in the first round, but overcame that in the next two rounds to win. She will be competing next in the X Games this weekend, along with Shuklastani Devin Logan, who is competing in the half-pipe ski event. And speaking of X Games-like sports, snowboarder Alex Diebold qualified for the World Championships at the races this week at Valmalenko, Italy. Very excited for him, as he said he was getting to be on the older side. Yeah, he said, I qualified with the kids. They let the old man on the on the course. Hey, if you still got it. And clearly he's doing well this season. Uh, Lauren Gibbs teamed up with Kelly Humphreys at the bobsled event at Koenigsee this past weekend, and they got sixth place together. And I believe the tour goes to Innsbruck this weekend. USA Weightlifting CEO Phil Andrews is on episode 74 of the Principles and Leadership in Business podcast, and we will have a link to it in the show notes. At the biathlon this past weekend in Antholtz, Claire Egan placed 47th in the 15K individual, 29th in the mass start, 13th in the women's relay. She's now 26th in the World Cup standings. I saw on Instagram, this made me sad, she's been really tired lately and doesn't and and like alluded to the fact that she may not race there again. So I don't know if she'll stick it out for one more season or if the way the I'm not sure what the calendar is for next year for biathlon. If Antholtz doesn't be part of the tour next year because they have to go to Beijing. So we'll see. I know we've joked about how every year Claire has threatened to retire and mm-hmm. yet somehow she keeps coming back. But I hear a difference this season. Right. And I do kind of think that some of the difference is, okay, we'll stick it out for another Olympics. 
versus and because she's 33 right now so she'll be 34 that's getting towards the end of a, a biathlete's career so we'll see but i would like her to stick it out for one more season and COVID hasn't helped you know all the additional pressures right around COVID this season and i'm sure the isolation and those things just it's got to be less fun on the tour right and she's been over in europe since before the season started she had to spend Christmas there. Luckily, her brother lives over in Europe, so she got to spend time with him and time with some coaches versus time by her, you know, not the holidays by herself. So, yeah. Uh, let's see what's going on with Tokyo 2020. Okay. So there's been nothing but speculation on will the Olympics happen because of a stupid opinion poll. You know, the Japanese people don't want it to happen, so therefore, will it? Okay, so... And not just a stupid opinion poll. There was that whole leaked report oh, from yeah. the anonymous Japanese official, which you know right away is is never a good source. Mm-hmm. That's like some random, you know, low-level bureaucrat doesn't want it to happen, so he releases the rumor that we're going to cancel. Right. And, and of course, that makes the IOC say we have no plan B, blah, blah, blah. They're going to happen. Everybody's going. Everybody has to spend a lot of energy and time saying the games will still happen. And they have a better handle on that this year because we know a little bit more of what's going on. We didn't remember March. We didn't know what was happening and how this COVID thing was going to play out. I remember I said and I absolutely own this that i said they were going to happen last summer oh, yeah. like this time last year when covid was starting to just hear the word i'm like no it's going to happen they're going to not let this be canceled yeah and same here because we all thought you know it's it's the boy who cried wolf you know zika was all over the news for real and we're like well you know it's a virus it'll probably play itself out by the time it gets warm we didn't realize how to the extent of what this virus was going to be but we've had pretty much every sport come back. They've had major events that have done well. They've got a lot of scenarios that they've learned from on how to do things. So I think the games are going to happen. It may not be the same games that we all know. That said, uh, Stephen Wade from the AP, and uh, there was a IOC executive board meeting today that we'll get to a little bit as well. But Stephen Wade wrote that the Tokyo Organizing Committee is going to roll out playbooks next week. So these playbooks will provide step-by-step -step details about how athletes and other people will get into and out of Tokyo safely. And these are living documents. I imagine they're on Google Docs or whatever cloud product they're using, you know, because T-Box said, look, version one comes out next week. And as they get more information and get closer to the event and have more data to work with, they'll keep updating these playbooks on how to do stuff. Because right now, everybody's worried about a surge in Japan and every us in America are going, well, you call that a surge. Let me show you a surge. And right. It's true. <laughs> oh, and, those Japanese don't know a surge when they see one. Right. So and then we've got these variants that have come around. We don't know how that's really going to affect things, but they're putting out these playbooks to say, okay, here's what we're going to do right now. 
when they get to March and start having to, they're really going to have to make decisions in March. And that's what some of the Tokyo organizing leaders have said. Uh, we're going to make some decisions then could be March or by the spring. So it could be that indoor venues could have fewer fans. If any outdoor stadiums could probably have fans. Uh, and Stephen Wade wrote that it appears increasingly unlikely that fans from abroad can attend. You know, that's just the way it is, sadly. But I think the IOC and Tokyo are both committed to having a games because that's what they do. They have the IOC has an Olympics and they're trying to make sure that athletes Olympic dreams come true, even if it's not the same way that they've celebrated it in the past. They still want a games. Now, one reason to have a game is because if you don't have a games, you're going to lose out on broadcast revenue somehow. And then the other thing is insurance. If the games got canceled, you're looking at, uh, I believe Reuters wrote this, looking at 2 to $3 billion in losses for insurers if the games were canceled, right? Wow. So the IOC has policy. Tokyo wow. has a policy. Broadcasters have a policy. TV stations have policies. It trickles out. Right. I would think the the NOCs and the NGOs, mm -hmm. you know, and all the, the governing bodies for the different sports. Wow. So there is, you know, two billion good reasons to have a games, even if they're not a games like they've had before. There are probably ways and they're examining things of how to have them safely and have athletes in a village. And they've talked about stuff that they're planning on doing. So we'll see as time goes on what these playbooks will say and how they'll be doing stuff. This, oh, this is, this is hard. This is really hard because you see both sides of it. You know, on the one hand, if you are an athlete who has a reason to not go, you know, if you have a, a certain health issue mm -hmm. and you choose not to go, your dream is lost. But your dream would be lost if the games was canceled as well. Mm-hmm. So. And, and it's different if you kind of when you make the decision not to go or I mean, sometimes it's the decision is made for you. You get injured. You can't go. Right. Like Marnie McBean had to pull out of Sydney right before the games because she injured herself. And that's hard to deal with seen that or or right. there's you know or it's um especially like track and field at swimming there's some crazy upset at the trials mm -hmm. and you don't make the team in your sport mm -hmm. don harper nelson are... 2016 yeah, i mean it it happens yeah i guess i always i always come back to what's the best thing for the athletes and obviously the best thing for the athletes is going to be to have the games in some format mm-hmm but are people going to put themselves and others at risk because the games are happening and you can't miss out on that dream? I don't know. I mean, I think if they're competing now already, there's some risk in that. But different sports have done a very good job of mitigating the risk. But I think that the overwhelming response has been, let us play. Yes. And we can deal with what that will look like. So Dick Pound went a little rogue. He wants to know why the Japanese don't want the games now. 
Oh, is he going into his, you know, scolder mode? Well, kind of. He's like, why are they so apathetic right now? And it's just like, Dick Pond, there's a surge going on. So, of course, somebody decides to ask a question when nobody's in the mood to hear it. I would bet if cases stay the same or go down as we get closer to the games, maybe they go down in Japan. And then maybe people get more excited. It's very hard to be excited about an Olympics when you see family and friends sick and dying. Mm-hmm. Or you can't go to work, you can't go to school, you lose your job, you can't go grocery shopping. I mean, how can you get too excited about the Olympics? Yeah, when the games are there, something will happen. It's something to focus on. It's something to take your mind off stuff. I don't know what Dick Pound is going to find out. And you know what makes me so sad about this? Because remember when we talked to Roy Tomazawa and he was talking about how the Japanese public had absolutely gone whole hog, embraced these games. They had received the most applications for domestic ticket sales Mm -hmm. of any games in history. And to see that lost. Right. It's just another loss from the pandemic. I mean, obviously, much less important than actual people's lives, but that joy and that excitement and that unifying all of Japan for this one joyful moment is gone. And that's extraordinarily sad. One thing that might change uh, inside the games was reporting that uh, the torch relay may be forced to divert away from public roads. So the torch relay is scheduled to begin on March 25th. So we still have almost two months uh, to see, but they are talking about changing things it because they don't want to attract large crowds along the streets. That's the one thing. So it could be scaled down. Things could be behind closed doors. Things could be in parks rather than along the street. We'll find out. But that is one thing to keep in mind, that even the torch relay may not be what we remember it to be. Okay, so I don't know if you'll remember this, but back in the 80s, there was an assassination attempt made on Pope John Paul II. Oh, yes, I do. That's how yes. he got his Pope mobile. And the Pope mobile. So after that, you kept your Pope fresh by encasing him in plexiglass. <laughs> so I'm wondering if we could have a little torch mobile that it just sort of rides through the streets. And the person who's carrying the torch is just in the little bubble mm-hmm. of the torch mobile. I don't know. But you have to keep the crowds away. That's the thing. You'd be keeping the torch safe. I don't think the the flame can get COVID. Right. But the people lining the streets, who knows? We could give them little bubbles too. (laughs) Like those umbrellas. You know those umbrellas? The old school umbrellas (laughs) that come all the way down around you? Everybody gets it. I mean, that is a marketing opportunity. There you go. Right there. The test events are set for marathon and uh, track and field. The Hokkaido Sapporo Marathon Festival will be held on May 5th. And then that's going to be up in Sapporo where the marathon will be. That's going to be a half marathon event, but they'll be able to test the course. And then on May 9th will be track and field events in National Stadium in Tokyo. That'll be that'll be a good test of many things. Exactly. So... <laughs> Just get your size ready because this week, as we've talked about, the people keep saying, why 
you know, there, there may not be a games, there may not be a games. Well, the CFO of the state of Florida said, hey, T-Bach, we can host the games for you. Call me. Okay, so for our listeners who are not American, they might not understand that Florida has become the punchline. If something stupid happens in the United States, it seems to happen in Florida. Mm-hmm. And they have, throughout this entire pandemic, have had so many surges, so many issues. And yet, let's have the games there. They don't have a natatorium. They don't have a, a track and field appropriate. for. But let's have them there. Right. Because Mickey Mouse is there. And, and because we had the NBA bubble. That'll be just fine. They probably think we have a swimming pool big enough, probably at one of the colleges. We can put everything in. No, no big deal. It doesn't, you know, six months to go, we can put that on. No big deal. Like, do you, you just want to go, huh? It takes an average city seven years to put the games on. After they've done the proposal for two or three years. Right. And you Florida's going to do it in six months. Right, right. But I loved it because he did put an open letter on his on the state's website and basically said, hey, T, call me. Here's my phone number. Like, could we put an open letter out on the website for T-Buck? Oh, yeah. And just say, hey, T-Buck, call us. We well, want to talk you know, to you. you. You know who I want to talk to. Kit McConnell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll put my phone number out there for Kit McConnell to call me. <laughs> Okay, that sounded really creepy. I'm not a Kim McConnell stalker. <laughs> All right, we're going to get some bad news out of the way. The Associated Press has reported that Russia will not file an appeal on the decision from the Court of Arbitration of Sport to loosen the restrictions on their decision from the appeal that they made in the whole doping situation. So we're sticking with the Russian flag and anthem are banned from Tokyo and Beijing. Mm -hmm. And they'll probably once again, like they were in Rio, be Olympic athletes from Russia. Yes. And then the individual athletes will have to prove that they're clean. Right. So. Okay. So nothing has changed from. So Rosada said, okay, fine. We'll yeah. deal with this. Yeah. We just, it's, we're done with this. We want to go forward. That's good news. Okay, we'll see. So, yes, the IOC met today. Uh, the executive board met today. And that always means a press conference with T-Buck. And I got to say, first, let's get the important stuff out of the way. Uh, didn't really wave. He kind of held up his hand almost as he said goodbye, but there was no official wave. Disappointing. Right. He acknowledged this, but I'm like, his hair's getting kind of long. And he said... Yeah, I'm starting to look like the 70s again, so. I have posted various pictures of him from his fencing and competing days, and he was fly, so I have no problem. But if he's going to go with the long hair, I want the mustache. Yeah, I think I think we need to do a little side-by-side -side comparison, so I did some screenshotting today. Excellent. <laughs> Put those up. <laughs> okay, hey, important stuff 1978 t wants to call me. I am there. <laughs> Well, first thing, the remember we talked a little bit about Italy having a governance problem and it could have been a real black eye because the IOC could have stripped them of their ability to march under their flag because uh, the government was too intertwined with the Olympic Committee. 
Well, the government made a decree and fixed that. So we're all good. He knew a guy. They took care of it. (laughs) A lot of it was spending time on these playbooks that they're going to have. He did talk about Beijing 2022. All it's almost one year to go. I know. Next week is one year to go to Beijing 2022. Sneak up and smack us in the face with a ski. Right. Uh, So they said all the venues are ready. The technical preparation has been excellent. They've got very strict measures and restrictions on testing and event prep and all that stuff. So they're doing okay. Not surprised. What we're going to hear about Beijing 2022, which, of course, they didn't really talk about, are all the human rights issues that are going on. So And how much they're actually spending. Right. He did talk a little bit about AIBA and the IWF because they're still worried. Very concerned about Aiba. I know. Very. I'm very interested what very concerned means going forward. Because, I mean, for Tokyo 2020, the IOC and Tokyo are putting on the event, not Aiba. So that tournament will be somebody else is running it. But what happens afterwards? Because Tibak had said there is a lack of progress with requested reforms like management and governance and refereeing. So they're going to send him another letter saying uh, we're concerned and see what happens. Very concerned in the scale of Tibak expression. That, that's that's it was, pretty significant. It, it was. It was very. I mean, I think just when he started talking about these two international federations, he was just like, this is. Not good. And in a very T-Bach diplomatic way, but you could tell like we are, they're not doing anything and it's getting worse instead of better. So I would be very concerned. So with the International Weightlifting Federation, he has great concerns about the apparent weakening of anti-doping rules and other governance because the IWF just put out new doping rules for anti-doping rules for themselves. And there seems, it, it did seem to be weaker and they just kind of slid them onto their website and didn't announce it that is what i I think i've read that in inside the games so it's one of those huh we got stuff that's a little bit lighter and because iwf wants to change their anti-doping rules that that's the basis of the ioc approval for their qualification system so they did this without consulting the ioc which you know, if T-Box concerned, you don't do that. So they are requesting a clear explanation of what the deal is. And it's on the next executive board agenda. Okay, so I'm going to say two things on this. Your sport has had so many podiums wiped out over the past 20 years, especially. I mean, probably there is half a dozen medals over 20 years that have stood up. Mm-hmm. And you're weakening... Your anti-doping efforts. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to know why. What planet and I, are they functioning on? I, I know. I, I just don't understand why they think that's okay. And, okay, and the second thing I'm going to say is if we're going back to 70s T-Bach and he's going to break out the sword again, I think IWF might want to get their act together. <laughs> and T-Bach always has right of way because he was a foilist. I'm telling you. He just needs to bring that foil into the meetings, put it on the table and say, okay, Mr. Weightlifter, what are we going to talk about today? The boxing, it's a little different because they could take him out. But why is the IWF so 
just determined to ruin their sport. I don't know. And that's, I mean, I just want to understand the mentality of IWF leaders and participants from a certain portion of the world who think this is okay and think we're going to get away with it. That's the thing. And maybe it's because they've gotten away with it for so long that they think that things will get better, just like magically. Oh, you're going to let us do what we want to do. I mean, they got away with the doping for so long. I mean, do you think they started doping in the past 20 years? No. No. We all, So they got away with doping probably for 25 years? Oh, I would years? think they've been getting away with doping since like the 50s or 60s. Maybe I'm really? wrong, but I bet it's been a long time. Well, I would imagine that if East Germany was doping their swimmers, somebody was doping their weightlifters. Okay, yes, I, I'll go with that. It's like they're just functioning on some other planet. Like they just don't get it. And I agree with you. You know, no matter how many times the IOC threatens them, they're going to have to throw weightlifting out for there to be any change. I, I they're think they're going to so. have to miss Paris. And that is very sad. I think it's it's sad for the clean athletes. I, I think that they're not going to understand that there's got to be a different situation. That happens until they get kicked out of the Olympics or until enough countries say, forget this. We're not dealing with you guys anymore. We'll start our own federation. I was just going to say, maybe what happens is the IOC discredits IWF and a rival federation mm -hmm. develops and that becomes the accredited federation. Right. Sadly for the clean athletes, I, I agree with you. I think that it should be out of Paris 2024 and have a hard time getting back into 2028. But let's let's get on a good note. The IOC has aligned with the Paris Agreement on Climate Change to to become a more carbon neutral organization. By by 2030, they're going to have a 45% reduction in their carbon footprint, and they want to hit 30% by 2024. And then, if they do that by 2024, they'll be climate positive. And that means that they'll reduce more carbon than they produce. So that was very encouraging to hear. You know, Tokyo was doing all kinds of new initiatives on that front. Mm -hmm. Paris has talked about it. L.A. has talked about it. So it's it's nice to see as an organization them coming out and saying we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. Interesting to see how Tahiti fits in there. Yeah, right. And one more thing, uh, the Rule 50, one of the journalists in the... Uh, Remember Rule 50? Yeah, right. When it was just that was the contentious thing. <laughs> so one of the journalists in the press conference asked about Rule 50 and said what was going on with that. And they've had this two-step process all along, a qualitative part and a quantitative part. And they are going to present findings and come with recommendations and proposals to the executive board, most likely in April. That's close. I mean, for the IOC. Mm hmm. That's close. Right. But both I bet they had to have a they have to be able to make a decision before Tokyo. Right. But no, that's what I mean. Oh, yeah. So close to Tokyo. Right there. They have really moved on this very quickly for them. Mm hmm. And it seems like it has been a very deliberative and not rushed process. And yet usually the IOC, it's like, oh, we'll get back to you in 2046. Not with this. I have been, and I've said this all along, I have been very impressed with how this behemoth of an international organization 
is trying to address such a complicated problem and do it quickly. Yeah, we should have some answers in a few months. On a lot of things. Exactly. Uh, One last other piece of Olympic news. There is an Olympic museum in Athens that's going to open up this year. They finally got their Olympic museum in order. It's going to be in the Golden Hall Shopping Mall in uh, Marusi. I believe I'm saying that right. That's right next to where the Olympic Stadium is. So put that on your travel bucket list. I was going to say another place we have to wait to go. Right. We're going to be recording from all kinds of places once we can probably (laughs) travel again. Right. We're going to be showing up on people's doors. (laughs) They have no idea what they're getting into. I have travel credits that have to get used. I have all the travel budget for two years just sitting there waiting for me. All of our friends who weren't able to go to Tokyo have that travel money. Mm -hmm. We've got travel to plan for years from now, so we'll call it a show. Let us know your book club thoughts. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we will be talking with author and historian Kat Ariel about the history and legacy of black women in athletics. As we go out to music by Archdale, thank you for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. loved your your speech there that was perfect